Good morning. What a sweet worship service this morning. Amen. Since God's Spirit right here with us today. Today we're thinking about Advent and the coming of Jesus Christ and celebrating that that Advent includes Jesus coming as our great high priest. And so today I uh, want us to look at <clears throat> several passages of Scripture today and uh, think about Jesus coming for as our Savior and as our high priest. He is the fulfillment of the promise of God. He is the Savior of all who will trust him. Amen. Born for you this day in the city of David is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And he has come for all who will turn to him in repentance and faith. Jesus is no ordinary man. He's the God-man. He was born of a virgin. He was born under the law. He's the promised one. He is the Messiah. He is our champion. He is our prophet. He is our priest. And he is our king. And today we're going to study Jesus as the fulfillment of the prophecy as our high priest. We're going to look at several passages of scripture. One is found in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 34. This will be a sign that will come to you concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Now remember, these are the sons of Eli. They were despicable. They were <clears throat> irreverent. They were rebellious. They were disrespectful of, the, of God and of their father. And this is what God says to Eli concerning his sons. Both of them will die in the same day. And indeed that happened. And then I will raise up a faithful priest for you, myself. He will do whatever is in my heart and mind. And I will establish a lasting dynasty for him. And he will walk before my anointed one for all time. That is a messianic promise. Who is this high priest? In the book of Hebrews, chapter number 2, verse 17, speaking about Jesus. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God, to make atonement for sins of the people. For see, since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he's able to come to those who are tempted. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle, and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was in all God's household. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 begins, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession of faith. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. 
For every priest taken from among men is appointed in matters pertaining to God for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray because he's also clothed with weakness. Because of this, he must make an offering for his own sins as well as for the people. No one takes this honor on himself. Instead, a person is called by God, as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not exalt himself to become a high priest, but God who said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And also in another place, You're a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who's able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and he was declared by God a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Amen. Today, as we think about these passages of Scripture, I want us to think about the priest in the Old Testament. The priest in the Old Testament had responsibilities and duties uh, uh, that, that he must perform, There were certain garments that he had to wear, and there were certain qualifications for his holy role as a priest. And so there's a difference between the priest and a prophet. Last week, we talked about the prophet and that Jesus was the prophet. The prophet spoke God's word, and he declared God's will for us. He proclaimed the truth to God's people. He was a mouthpiece for God. And he represented God before the people. But the priest's role was significantly different than the prophet's role. He represented men before holy God. He stood before God in intercession. He led the people to rightly worship God in holiness and obedience. And he prayed for God's people. Today I want to kind of use as an illustration... <coughs> a, uh, a picture of the high priest's vestments, uh, the garb that the high priest would wear. And uh, if I get the, this pointer to work, which I, I'm not sure I'm going, there it is, maybe. I think the battery's about dead. All right. All right, notice this is the high priest. Underneath is the linen. This is the linen. This is a linen garment underneath. And it's the foundation for his apparel. And then there is, uh, on this high priest, a robe. And the robe is made of blue and sewn. And then this apron is called an ephod. And this was a holy vestment that the high priest wore. It is 
connected together with these onyx stones. And they are set in gold and gold. And on each onyx stone are six of the tribes. So all 12 tribes listed on each shoulder are six. And this breastplate is a nine-inch square. And that nine-inch square is folded, and there's a pocket inside. And on that vestment, this nine-inch square breastplate, are three stones in a row, four columns and of stones. And notice that's all 12 tribes represented by a different color stone. It's held together by a sash. And inside of the pocket is the Urim and the Thurim, these two stones that help discern the will of God. What this represents is the priest's garments. He is bearing on his shoulders the full weight of the nation of Israel, and they are on his heart as he ministers before God. At his hem are sewn dangling pomegranates and bells. So it'd be a pomegranate filled with seeds, and then a bell, pomegranate and a bell. So that he is ministering before the Lord, not only do the people hear the noise of his vestments, but it's to protect him from death as well as he's ministering in the holy place before God. On his head is a turban, and on that turban is a gold nameplate. And the gold nameplate says, Holy unto the Lord. Holy unto the Lord. So those are the vestments of the high priest. The high priest was selected among the sons of Aaron. The high priest had to be bathed and anointed, and he was to minister among, in the presence of holy God, bearing, bearing on his shoulders and near his heart the children of Israel. The problem for the nation of Israel is that sometimes, many times, the priests wore the garments outwardly, but inwardly, the moral qualifications fell short of what God wanted them to be. They did not have integrity, which was necessary for their effective ministry. So as we look at our text today, in Hebrews chapter 5, I want us to think about the qualifications of the earthly high priest. In Hebrews chapter 5, and we're going to begin with verse number 1, there are three essential qualifications. Number one, solidarity with God's people. Secondly, sympathy toward God's people. And thirdly, his selection, which came by the will of God. So let's look at those together. 
First of all, his solidarity. In chapter 5, verse 1, For every high priest taken among men is appointed in matters pertaining to God for the people, to offer both gift and sacrifices for sin. Notice two things that the priest does here. He offers gifts and he offers sacrifices. Gifts of worship and thanksgiving and celebration and, and, and adoration and love for God. But not only that, sacrifices for guilt and sin and failure of God's people. And the priest is taken among men, it says. He is appointed in matters pertaining for God. Every high priest is taken from among men, and, and the, he is one with humanity. He is, high priest is not an angel. He's not some deceased saint that prays for us. He's not an animal, but he must be a man. And this is a man that stands in the presence of God. In Exodus chapter 28, the first two verses, it says that the, um, the priest will be from Aaron and his sons, and they're to come before me as priests, and you're to make garments for them. In the book of Numbers, chapter number 8, it says, take the Levites among the Israelites and ceremonially cleanse them, sprinkle them with pure water, shave their bodies, wash their clothes, and they are to purify themselves. And then you lay your hands on a bull and sacrifice it for the sins of the Levites. You're to separate them as holy unto the Lord. You see, the Levites, the, the, the priestly tribe, is to be represent man to God. And he was linked with the community of faith. And he's linked to the children of Israel. And he was a part of that community. And he didn't live in some ivory tower, isolated from other men and women. That's not how the priests ministered among God's people. I heard about a young pastor. He said, my ideal situation as a pastor would simply be to have a tunnel from my study to the pulpit. And I would be in my study all week in with my books and studying and learning, preparing my sermons, and then come through the tunnel, not distracted by any of the people, and appear in the pulpit and give my sermon and then disappear and not have to deal with all the people. Well, that might be his idea, but that is not what it means to pastor a church. Amen. Years ago, I worked with a pastor who had kind of a mindset like that. He was never really close to any of the people. He never really was visited the people. He rarely was seen among the people. He secluded himself most of the week. We live in an era that we are attracted some people to celebrity pastors in great big platforms and nobody really gets to know them. But I don't think that's the way it's supposed to be. The priest ministers in the daily life of his people. The priest knows the stresses that the people have. He knows about bills and children and relatives and school. and He knows about all of those things and dealing with a wife and a spouse and family and in-laws. He, he, he lives life. And this was the high priest. 
he not only was, identifies with them, he's one with them, but he's sympathetic toward them. In chapter number five, verse two, look, he's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray since he is clothed with weakness. Because of this, he must make an offering for his own sins as well as the people. You see, he knew his own struggles with sin, his own waywardness and his own ignorance and his own sin. He had to come before God and confess his own sins to God, and he had to make sacrifices for his own sins. In the Day of Atonement, in Leviticus chapter number 16, we're told in God's Word, in verse number 16, <clears throat> verse number 6, Leviticus 16, in verse number 6, listen to the Day of Atonement, what the priest is to do. In verse number 6, Aaron will present the bull for his sin offering and make atonement for himself and his household. Why? Because he knew he was a sinner. Verse 11, and Aaron presents the bull for his sin offering and makes atonement for himself and his household. He will slaughter the bull for his sin offering, then take the fire pan full of blazing coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and bring them inside the curtain. He's to put the incense on the fire before the Lord so that the cloud of incense covers the mercy seat over the testimony or else he will die. And he's to take some of the bull's blood and sprinkle it with his finger against the east of the mercy seat. And then he'll sprinkle some of the blood with his finger before the mercy seat seven times. He is making a full presentation of an offering for I, his own sin. It's not my brother or my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Amen. My sin, my failure. In the Mishnah, a Jewish prayer book, there's a prayer of a priest that says this, O oh God, I've committed iniquity and transgressed and sinned before thee. I and my house and the children of Aaron, the, thy holy people, O oh God, forgive, I pray, the iniquities and transgressions and sins which I've committed and sinned before thee and my house. This was followed by the, after the priest presents for himself the blood sacrifice into the holy of holies for all of the people. But he comes first for his sins. Therefore, this is what Hebrews says, he could deal gently with them, those brothers and sisters who've fallen away and who have sinned and acted ignorantly because he needed grace and he needed help and he needed God's forgiveness. There was no pride in him as he offered a sin for the people. <coughs> and there was no place for that because he was beset by weaknesses and he lived in a community of weakness. The priest knew what it was like to be weak in his mind and his body. 
In his body, he knew sickness like they did. He knew trauma like they did. He knew grief like they did. He knew trauma like they did. He knew fatigue like they did. He knew what it was like to become older like they do. He understood the weakness of intellect, feeling dumb and insecure and, 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 and inadequate. He knew what it was like to feel depressed or alone or misunderstood. But that made him able to minister to God's people. The Bible says God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Amen. And there's no place for arrogance in ministry. Ministry and arrogance are opposed to one another. Amen. I'm alarmed at the arrogance that I see about people who are in high places of ministry, strutting about in their ministry. I want you to know as a pastor, before every sermon, before every counseling appointment, I pray about my own weakness. I pray about my own sin and my own failures. And before I ever preach a sermon to you, I want you to know, I preach that sermon to me. And it's me. And I'm a part of this community of faith. And we all are humble and weak. And we all are broken and need help. And there is no place for arrogance in us as well. The problem is in so many religious communities, initially, People come to God in faith and humility, and they come, and and they're gentle and joyful and grateful, and they invite other people, but something happens later, and a harshness develops, and a coldness, a coldness for the people in their lost condition, judgmentalism. And we become unsympathetic. And somehow we become deluded that we are better than they are. That is not from the Holy Spirit. That's your pride. And it's sin. I want a question I want to ask you. Do you, talk to peop- to, do you talk to people about people more than you talk to God about people? I'm so afraid that we spend more time talking to each other about people than to God about people. When we talk to each other about people, often it is to denigrate, tear down, or criticize That is the awful nature of gossip. And it's poison. And it destroys a fellowship. It destroys families. It destroys your witness. And it destroys and undermines your standing with the Lord. Lord. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Before you become critical, so hypercritical and hateful for other people, 
I want you to check and see what is the source of that. And let's humbly stand before God praying for people, praying for those who are wayward, pray for those who've gone the wrong way. Because none of us have a standing in our own merit. We all need God's grace. Amen. 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 And finally, there's selection. Nobody takes this honor. If you look with me into, <clears throat> back to our text in chapter number 5, it says, <clears throat> no one takes this honor on himself. Instead, a person is called by God just as Aaron was. Notice that this is a calling by God. All the priests come by divine appointment. They don't seek it or pursue it. When you try to, find, to appoint yourself to the position of priesthood, you put yourself in grave danger. As a matter of fact, we have some Old Testament illustrations of that. Do you remember Korah and his rebellion in the time of Moses and Aaron? Remember how Korah and some of the other Levites become envious of Aaron and his family because they are in the priesthood and they are helping to support the ministry of priesthood as Levites? And they want to become priests. And so Korah leads this rebellion along with 250 other followers. In number 16, we're giving this story. But what happens? God's judgment falls on them and they all perish because of the rebellion. Do you remember Saul, the first king of Israel? He could have had a long reign, he and his family, but he instead tried to do Samuel's job as a priest and rebelled against God, and his monarchy was taken away from him. You remember Josiah, the king, who went, who was wonderful in so many ways, but in his arrogance and pride, he went into the temple and tried to offer incense like the priest did. And he was confronted by the priest and said, that's not your calling. You're the king, not the priest. And the priests are called by God. And immediately God struck him with leprosy. And he was banished for the rest of his reign. Quarantined and lived and died in isolation because of his rebellion to God. Listen, there's no place for arrogance and ego. Your calling to ministry is, an, is a calling by Almighty God. Amen. I remember as a young preacher boy, sitting before a group of older pastors in an ordination council and then an ordination service. I was just 20 years old. Felt the call of God of my life. Been called to a small little church to be the pastor in my home church. Was asked to ordain me. And I remember one of the men asking me, why do you want to pastor God's people? And my only answer was because he called me to do it. I knew what it was like to live in a pastor's home, and I never really desired to be a pastor of a church. I didn't want all the headaches. I didn't want all the 
There's a lot of issues. I did not come into pastoring not knowing what it was all about. But I knew, but I knew, but I knew that God said, I put my hand on you and I've called you. There's something that a priest knew that he wasn't in this ministry except by the calling of Almighty God. Hmm. Secondly, today, I want us to think about the qualifications of our eternal high priest, Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at the same categories in a reverse order. In chapter number 5, beginning with verse number 5, in the same way, Christ did not exalt himself to become a high priest, that's his selection, but it's God who said, you're my son, today I've become your father. And also in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. These two prophecies quoted, one is from Psalm 2 and the other from Psalm 110, verse number 4. What he's saying is that Christ did not pursue this, but he was appointed to this by God. He said, you are my son. Today I've become your father. This is an office, a calling, your kingship, your sonship. But in another place, Psalm 110, verse 4, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever according to the pattern of Melchizedek. Who is this Melchizedek? Melchizedek is this this priestly figure that we don't know so much about. There's a reference to him that's found in Genesis chapter 14. He has no genealogy. He has no understand. We have no understanding of his parents or his lineage. In Hebrews chapter seven, verse one, it says, "For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, he is a king. He's king of Salem. The word Salem means peace, and he's priest of the Most High. That's what he is. His name, the word Melchizedek, means a king of righteousness." And it says, he met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings. He is superior to Abraham because he gives a blessing to Abraham. And Abraham responds in verse 2 and gave him a tenth of everything. He submits to him and gives him a tithe of everything he has won in the battle. His name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning or end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he remains forever a priest. Wow. Jesus is in the order of this figure, unlike any other king and priest in the Old Testament. Not from the earthly line, Jesus, from the Levites. He's from the tribe of Judah. 
it's not an external priesthood, but it's a priesthood that has no beginning and no end. It's a superior priesthood. And Abraham and all of his descendants submit to him and pay their tithes to him. Jesus is not only superior, but he's in solidarity with his people. Notice in verse number 7 of chapter 5. It says, during his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus is in solidarity with us. He is a high priest that is sympathetic to what we go through. He participated fully in the human condition. Jesus, Jesus, the very Son of God, is the Son of Man. And Jesus, fully man, knows pain. Jesus knew sorrow. Jesus knew grief. Jesus knew death. Jesus knew disappointments. Jesus knew betrayal. Jesus knew unfaithfulness, didn't he? Jesus knew what it was like to be gossiped about, didn't he? Jesus knew what it was like to be misrepresented and lied about. Jesus knew what it was like to be mocked and falsely accused. Jesus knew what it was like to be rejected. Jesus knew prejudice. Jesus knew racism. And Jesus knew hate. But Jesus not only knew all of those things, Jesus knew what it was like to suffer like no other man ever suffered. In the Garden of Gethsemane, just outside Jerusalem, the night before he's crucified, he's in the garden praying. As I've talked about before, and as you know, Jesus was fully man and fully God. Yet, the exercise of his omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence were under the direction of God. And he came in his incarnation with certain limits that he gave to God himself. But it explains in his earthly life the flashes of the supernatural knowledge and power why he walked on the earth. But it also explains the fullness of his humanity, how Christ felt this agony in his spirit, in his flesh, about going to the cross and dying. He recoiled at the idea of the cross. He was greatly distressed, it says in Mark 14. The cup was horrific in his mind. In Mark 14, 34, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. His sweat became, as it were, great drops of blood. He falls to the ground. He prays if it's possible that this hour might pass from him. But he says, Abba, Daddy, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but your will be done. Hebrews says, with loud cries, he called out to God. His flesh calls for escape. Yet he yields to the Father's will more than his flesh. Jesus was getting ready to bear on the cross the fullness of our sin consequence. Amen. 
He was not dying just any martyr's death. It was different than any other death. He was to drink the full cup of the wrath of God in himself. So that he might make atonement for our sin. Jesus was truly a man. He was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. He knows your temptations. Did you know that? He felt the full weight of temptation and trial in his own life. Some of you might want to say, yeah, but he never did sin, so he doesn't really know what full temptation was like. Well, that's wrong thinking. He is the only man that knows the fullness of temptation. If you frequent the gym, which I don't, <clears throat> and you have a heavy weight that you're trying to lift, who knows the fullness of that weight? The one that starts to lift it and quits and fails? No. The person that knows the full weight is the one that lifts it all the way. Jesus did not fail, but he bore the full weight of our temptation. Amen. He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He knows it, and he's sympathetic and merciful, high priest. He is sympathetic with us. He cares for us. He helps us. If you look with me to Hebrews chapter number 4, verse 15. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, now this, this is how great he is, he didn't pass through a curtain, he passed through the heavens. He is Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in every way, as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. He comes to you. He, he dispenses grace and mercy and kindness and love and forgiveness and strength and comfort in our time of need. He is our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is with us, and he is for us. Hallelujah. Amen? There's an old Scottish hymn. <clears throat> it's written by a man called Michael Bruce in the 1700s. Michael was a weaver by trade. He felt called into ministry and pursued his education and went to a theological school. But he was always sickly and suffered, and at the age of 21, he died before he ever started his ministry. But there's a Scottish hymn that he wrote, and it's called, Where High the Heavenly Temple Stands. Listen to this hymn. Where high the heavenly temple stands, the house of God not made with hands, a great high priest our nature wears, 
Jesus, the Son of God, appears. He who for men their surety stood and poured on earth his precious blood pursues in heaven his mighty plan, the Savior and the friend of man. Though now ascended up on high, he bends on earth a brother's eye, partaker of the human name. He knows the frailty of our frame. Our fellow sufferer he yet retains a fellow feeling of our pains and still remembers in the skies his tears, his agonies and cries. In every pang that rends the heart, the man of sorrows had a part. He sympathizes with our grief and to the sufferer sends relief. With boldness, before, therefore, at the throne, let us make all our sorrows known and ask the aid of heavenly power to help us in this evil hour. Amen. God is with you. He is for you. Christ intercedes for you. He's sympathetic to you. But we would be remiss if we didn't talk about one aspect of Jesus' priesthood that is so different than any earthly priest. The priests brought offerings and sacrifices, but they were animal sacrifices. The death and bloodshed on the altar in the earthly priest's ministry was that of a vicarious, involuntary animal victim. It had to be a victim with no spot, a gift with no blemish, but it was an animal. And an animal was dying in the place the blood was shed on that altar of an animal for man. But there was no man without spot or blemish until God sent his own son in the likeness of man. And he was the perfect man without spot or blemish, without sin. And he, he appears in heaven for us. In Hebrews chapter number 9 and verse number 22. Look with me. According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copy of things in heavens to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves to be purified with a better sacrifice than these animal sacrifices. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself that he might appear in the presence of God for us. Amen. He did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest must enter the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another, an animal. Otherwise, he would have to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now, he has appeared one time at the end of ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. This great high priest Jesus not only presents a sacrifice, 
he becomes the sacrifice. And he dies and sheds his perfect blood for our sin. What a great Savior. And atonement was made. And holy God is satisfied. And sins are expiated. And God says, it is finished. Paid in full. That's our high priest. Do you see him? Look in the heaven. Do you see him? Do you see him there? Do you see him in the holiest of places by the Father? Do you see him clothed in garments of righteousness? Do you see him with your name on his shoulders? Do you see them there, there with your name on his heart? Do you see his nail-scarred hand holding your name close to his heart as he talks to the Father about you? Do you see him there with his blood for you? Do you see him there with the diadem on his head that says, Holy to the Lord? Do you see him there? Do you hear him speaking your name to the Father? Do you hear him saying to the Father, He's mine, Father. She's mine, Father. I died for him, Father. I died for her, Father. Help her. Help him. He needs help. He is your high priest. Do you see him there dispensing grace and mercy in your hour of need? I don't know what you're going through in your life today, but he is our high priest. And you can come to him, to the Father in the name of Jesus And Jesus is there. He never stops interceding for you. He's a priest forever. There's no end to his rule. He wears you on his heart and his shoulders. And he loves you. And he's for you. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of your faith. He is your high priest. Father in heaven, thank you for this word. Thank you for Jesus being our Savior and our priest. Father, we run to you today. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen.